Hello, Four Sober Chicks podcast listeners. We are Heather, Meredith, Dana, and Tracy, four women recovering out loud. We gather here from around the world to discuss all things related to alcohol addiction, sobriety, and various paths to recovery. We get real about the highs, the lows, and the amazing reality of living a sober life. This podcast is a creative collaboration by women, for women, and for anyone who supports women. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Four Sober Chicks Podcast. I'm Heather, and joining me as always are Dana, Tracy, and Meredith. Today, we're super excited because this is like my big get of a guest, um, and that is Dr. Don Nickel, um, co-founder of She Recovers, amazing, uh, badass woman in recovery. So I'm going to just read her uh, profile just real quick. Dr. Don Nickel is a respected thought leader in the women's recovery sphere and co-founder of She Recovers Foundation, a nonprofit public charity, and a global grassroots movement that inspires hope, reduces stigma, and empowers women in our in or seeking recovery from the life challenges, including mental health issues, trauma, and substance abuse. In her professional work as a health policy researcher and consultant, Dawn focuses on the how best, on, I'm sorry, Dawn focuses on how best to support women who experience substance use disorders, mental health issues, and intimate partner violence. The three issues that prompted Dawn to start her own personal recovery journey in 1987. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. We really, really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So my first time that I met you, um, I had hopped on to, I Googled um, recovery blog and She Recovers came up and I kind of perused it. And then I saw something about coach designate and find out if your qualifications and I sent an email and I, I guess I didn't do my due diligence because when you responded and set up a Zoom, I hopped on the Zoom and you were like, yes, and I'm the co-founder of She Recovers, at which point I had to pick myself up off of my floor because I was like, how is this person making time just to talk to me? But as I've gotten to know you and seen you in the She Recovers space and all of that, that's exactly what you do for all of us is really personalize your relationships. And it's amazing to me how that, how you have the energy and the capacity to do that. So thank you for making everyone in the She Recovers space feel like there's a friend of yours and that they, you have knowledge of them and care about them. I think, and you see them. That's what I think is you make women feel seen. Oh, thank you, Heather. That's really very kind. I, you know, it. To be honest, all all of the things that I do with She Recovers would be difficult and and not really too meaningful if it wasn't for the personal connections that I make with as many women as I can. And although I'm no longer the person that talks to people about the coach designation program, <laughs> uh, Leanna does that marvelously now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did that for a long time, and and also I would say that for me, it's. I mean, my entire raison d'etre, like the reason that I'm here for whatever reason, and you know, I have a higher power and um, I found a higher power in a 12-step program and I'm no longer particularly involved in a 12-step program, but I, I still feel really drawn to the concept of there is a reason why we're all here. 
And my reason is just to do do whatever it is around women in recovery. And um, so, yeah, the greatest joy I have is making those personal connections, whether it be on our Facebook group or in person is off, you know, mm -hmm. obviously the best. But yeah, I just it's the richest part of my life is are the relationships that I have with women like you. And I like meeting many more. I mean, I know Dana. I haven't met Meredith or Tracy before. So this is really cool. So thank you. That I still, you know, this was an accidental movement. Nothing was purposeful about it. It wasn't like my dream to do this. And so when people talk about me in particular, as if I'm something bigger than what I see myself as, I I accept it. You know, I'm no longer like, oh, no, no, it's nothing. I realize I have a legacy and this is cool. Whoever knew I didn't do this on purpose. But um, I do. I'm a little bit surprised because I really am not that person who is um, inaccessible. I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm very, very accessible. And, and I expect to keep that for all my days. Well, it comes through for sure. So let's talk about She Recovers and your story and how we got to where we are today. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a long convoluted story, but, um, you know, the, the Coles Notes version, I suppose, is I grew up in a family that, uh, a middle-class family in Montreal, Quebec. My mom and dad came, uh, you know, built a family uh, on a foundation of their own traumas and dysfunctions. They did the very best they could. And in many regards, it was enough. We always had a beautiful home. Uh, you know, we had a pool and we were really well taken care of in, in many ways, but emotionally, uh, there just wasn't a lot of emotional availability. My mom had grown up in a family with um, family violence, domestic violence. My dad grew up in um, just a very closed emotionally, you know, closed off emotionally family. And there were four kids and we were noisy and we fought a lot and we were, you know, rambunctious. And I kind of grew up in what I always look back at as this pressure cooker. You know, the the entire reason that my mother lived in those days was to keep us all calm, cool and collected so that my dad didn't wig out. And the weirdest, like I never saw my dad really freak out. And that's just a testament to my mom's energy at making sure that we didn't freak him out. Um, my dad was just really, really, he died just in October. And he, I want to say he turned into like a lovely, emotionally available man sometime in his 70s, which was really cool. But I guess what happened for me was I witnessed that in our family, every weekend, all of the aunts and uncles and cousins, and there were a lot of them, would congregate, mostly at our house, and they would party. And it was really not the kind of partying I did. Their partying was kind of, it looked really good. I mean, it was the 60s, and it was, our parties at our house, the women would wear long gowns and jewelry, and the men would wear coats and and the ties. And the ties wouldn't come off until they were, like, really hot from dancing. And there was dancing, and there was food everywhere you know there'd be like the dinner we'd have dinner or a late afternoon barbecue and then 10 o'clock all the other food would come out and it was just it was magical to me and I remember equating alcohol with I like my dad a lot more after he's had a few of those drinks he's just so much more relaxed in our family we joke now that you could tease dad about going bald anytime between Friday at 6 p.m and Sunday at noon but never any time else during the week so I think I went into my teenage years thinking, well, there's a way to be. And, and you know, if I want to be relaxed and I had anxiety, extreme anxiety, probably from growing up in a house where I didn't know, you know, I wasn't allowed to speak or move or even laugh at the dinner table or I'd get a side glance from my mom. So my anxiety just kind of um, really started coming out when I was about 15 or 16. And so I just kind of turned to what I thought might help. Not consciously, I'm sure, but I remember the first time I drank, I actually blacked out which I didn't enjoy. I didn't enjoy throwing up. 
but I did enjoy I did enjoy something about escaping from the anxiety and who I was and then I found drugs and then uh, in my family at about 16 my mom my mom found herself in a relationship with a person who was not my dad and I found out about it and you know I was 16 years old and I just those days are really hazy but what I remember is one day saying to her you either let me go to the mall or I'm telling dad and remember like just this big fight with my mom and it was it felt terrible and and she was crying and I knew that I couldn't hurt her in that way and I didn't trust myself not to open my is my view my big mouth I ran away you know and that was part of it I ran away to get away from the stress of the family to get away from you know maybe me really hurting my mom and doing something terrible to her and I went to the Yukon um so I went to Whitehorse in the Yukon where I was 16 years old totally inequipped to deal with life quit school and um, got involved with people who were doing heavier and more serious drugs and drug dealing. And yeah, kind of from 16 to 20, I went through a very fast period of descent into addiction, mental health issues, suicidal ideation. Um, I, I overdosed four times purposefully. And yeah, that was it. I, and I was on this and I knew, I knew when I, by the time I was even 17, I thought like, I'm not going to get out of this alive. Like the way I do things around, the way they do things around here is really dangerous. And, and I didn't want to be in that situation. I didn't know how not to be. Uh, I couldn't go home and I, you know, I couldn't continue. So fell in love with a dude. Um, he became my drug. And at 20 years old, I became pregnant and uh, I write about this and I talk about this often, but my oldest daughter, Ashley, saved my life. I didn't give up drinking during my pregnancy. I gave up drugs. Um, I gave up regular drinking, but I still had several binges through that pregnancy. And then I gave birth to her and I was really pretty good for about the first two years of her life. Her dad and I were not not together, but we were not not together. We were still talking about whether we'd be together. I should have known it two years. Like, I don't think he's coming. Like, this is probably not going to happen. But I was... It was serious, serious love addiction. And um, yeah, so I just kind of kept going. And then I met um, Taryn's dad. So I, I fell into another relationship with a cocaine dealer, which was very handy for me because I liked to do the cocaine. Uh, and not all the time at this time, I, you know, I had a little girl and I was no longer a daily user as I had been for those four years. But I was still binging and still really unhealthy. And the relationship was extremely unhealthy. And he was... Um, violent on occasion I don't say that to minimize it but the fact of the matter is that in many instances with domestic violence it is drug-induced and his was cocaine-induced violence and it just it happened enough times that I was not into it after a couple of years I wanted to get out and uh, I had an opportunity when I hit a bottom at 27 years old so now my kids are six and two and I'd been trying to not do drugs and trying not to drink and trying to get out of an unhealthy relationship for years and uh, as it turned out, my ex-husband ended up in a drug-induced psychosis, and we ended up seeing a drug and alcohol counselor at the hospital. Before they would release him, he had to speak with her. So we had this conversation with this woman, and she said, I'm sorry, Patrick, you're going to, oh, sorry, Patrick, you're going to have to, I mean, he, he knows I tell his story all the time, it's okay. Um, but she said, you're going to have to give up alcohol and pot and pills and anything else you're doing, not just cocaine, if this is to work. And he said, well, I'm not willing to do that. I continued to see her for six months and talk about how I could help him. I, you know, I didn't want our family to break up. I, I knew that he wasn't going to be violent anymore because he wasn't doing cocaine. He gave that up and never touched it again. Um, but at the end of six months, this woman turned to me and said, I do not even remember what Patrick looked like. I don't want to talk about his drug problem anymore. I'd like to talk about yours. 
And it was just one of those moments where, wow, you know, I, I thought I'd been fooling her. <laughs> Somehow I didn't really know how she picked up on all of that. So we made a deal that I would go to treatment if I couldn't, if I, if I ever, if I binged again. And three weeks later, for some reason, I got honest with her and I said, yeah, I binged. Um, so I went to treatment and in treatment, my counselor there said that I was not going to succeed in my recovery if I went back to that relationship and that I would have to, he would have to agree to really give up everything and have nothing in the house and all the things that, you know, that, that I needed. Um, which isn't true for everybody in every relationship, but in my case, it was. I mean, I, I needed to be out of the relationship for reasons other than the fact that he drank and smoked pot, obviously. So yeah, I called him from her office and said, these are my conditions if you want me to come home. And he said, well, then I guess you're not coming home. And I didn't, uh, I went home, packed up, grabbed the girls, left. Never did cocaine. I personally never did cocaine or drank again. So it'll be 36 years coming up in July. Oh, gosh, that still blows me away when I say that. Um, I did do harm reduction for a couple of years. I ended up, I did go back to smoking pot for two years and I ended up getting so addicted to it that I had to go back to treatment to get off of it. And then since that time, the only other time I've used a substance to change the way I felt was in the year 2000 when my mother, after 16 months of um, terminal leukemia, passed away. And I took her pills and I just, I wasn't, I didn't want to, I didn't really want to escape or get loaded or get high. I just wanted to, I just wanted to numb out. And so I took her pills and I remember like I took them as prescribed. <laughs> I was, you know, check out, oh, can I take oh And then on the second day, I remember looking at this bottle of pills going, hmm, I have to think about this. And I thought about it. And really what came up for me was there was no way I wanted to go back to the life that I'd known so many years ago. And secondarily, this was no way to honor my mother, who was so, so proud of my recovery and all that I had done. At that time, I'd gone back to school. Um, I, Yeah, so fast forward, left the marriage, worked for a few years, decided to go back to school to finish a degree. Uh, I'd done a GED. Um, do you have GEDs where you all live? I'd finished my GED sitting at the bar when I was a bartender in the Yukon. And so I had my GED and a few years into my recovery, um, I decided to go to university and, and I went back to university for 13 years. So when my mom died, I had just started my PhD and the PhD at that time was in care of the dying and my mother was dying. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm learning about this at the same time that I'm living it. And, and that was one of the greatest gifts of my life. I've had very many, but um, I think before I started studying care of the dying, I was mostly like around policy around where people lived and who take, took care of them. Before I started studying that, I probably was really uncomfortable with the idea of death and the fact that I was being kind of introduced to it and the idea of a, a natural death and those types of things meant that I was able to show up for my mom in a way that nobody else in my family was able to. So it was really, really beautiful that I got to take care of her for 16 months and at the very end of her life as well. So by then I'm in recovery. I'd been in 12-step recovery for years. Um, off and on, I know I'd have like really intense periods and I, I always talk about falling in love with the 12 step recovery programs again. And cause I'd go away and you know, I went away for a while when I was doing school really intensely and then went back. And so when my mom passed away, I really got down to, okay, now I am running out of time. I've had 16 months off of my PhD. I've got to get that done. Um, I finished my PhD in 2005. I was living in Alberta, Canada at the time. And 
just as I was finishing my PhD, I ended up in the hospital. Uh, and I had, it turned out that I had colon cancer and the, I had a cancerous tumor that perforated my colon. And I ended up in the hospital in June, 2005. According to our surge, my surgeon, I was within like half an hour of my death because I was septic. Everything was leaking into my body and I was dying. He saved my life. I was very grateful. And we moved here to the West coast where we are now. And I had a whole new recovery to think about. Right. So I was already, my mom had died five years before I'd never fully recovered from her death. I did not, I couldn't handle that. She was gone. Some days I still can't. Um, so I had, I'd been packing kind of as some of us do in recovery. I'd been packing around these things that I hadn't fully resolved. One was the grief for my mom. Then it was the fact that um, a year after my mom had passed away, my daughter Taryn ended up addicted to cocaine and meth quite out of the blue, believe it or not. It happens really quickly for some teen girls. She fell in love with a guy who was a drug dealer. You know, you think she was walking in my footsteps at all. So that had been really, really traumatic and she was okay. We'd gotten her um, care and attention and she was okay. But by the time I moved here to BC, I was just really looking to numb a whole bunch of things, still numbing my grief, numbing the fact that I had almost died from cancer and what that meant, numbing what had happened with Taryn. And I started going really, really, really fast in my life. Um, I felt like, although we were fine financially while I went to school for 13 years, because my husband, my husband owned a business. When we moved here, I felt like financially, I really need to get going. So I started doing consulting work. I was teaching at the university and I was working in government. And from 2005 to 2011, I worked three jobs. I was working 16 hours a day on the average and numbing everything that, that kind of came before when we moved here. And that took its toll. And in February, 2011, I ended up um, breaking down in, in a couple of executive meetings, like crying, bursting into tears. The first one, I don't even remember why it was. And I left the room. Nobody really knew I was crying. But the second one, I couldn't get up from my chair, but I sat there crying because my executive director looked at me funny. And so I, for those of you who are a little hypersensitive, you know what that feels like. I just, I couldn't move and I couldn't explain what was going on. But when I left, Later on, I actually went into my executive director's office. I think I need a couple of days off. She said, do you think? So I did. I went to a doctor who said that I would need some time off. And I started talking about, you know, all the things that had gone on in my life and where I was at. And she said, you're going to need to uh, go on leave for a couple of months. And I said, oh, no, like, I think the weekend will be good. You know, take Friday and the weekend and I'll be fine. She said, yeah, no, that's not going to work. So I agreed to take a week. And by the end of the week, like once I stopped, working and for some reason like I, I was so sick and I was so afraid I had been blacking out driving home I'd been bla in blackout mode from stress and so I knew there was something really really wrong and I needed to address it so I took a week to decide whether or not I wanted to take a stress leave and decided that I would and just started to unravel you know got back into therapy got back into yoga started to unravel my entire life all the things that I hadn't addressed in childhood all the things that had happened in adulthood you know, I'd had um, a sexual assault when I was 19 that I'd never looked at. I'd never told anybody about because it was a friend and, you know, a friend of the person I was in a relationship and in love with. And there was so much to unpack. And it took me four months. I went on leave for four months. And during that time, I started blog a blog and it was called a blog called Recovering Dawn. And I was really blogging about uh, recovering from what had been diagnosed as workaholism 
and what that meant. And I was just so fascinated with the fact that I'd become a workaholic. It was, I'm still quite fascinated with it. I think it's a really interesting condition and started blogging about that. And then that soon turned into me talking in the, my, on my blog about how recovering from workaholism is really the same process as recovering from substance use, whether alcohol, cocaine, pills, pot. It's the same as recovering from love addiction, which I'd recovered from. It's the same as recovering from grief and loss and, and anxiety and all of the things. And I started having this conversation about how it doesn't matter what it is that, how, how our kind of dysfunction is manifesting itself. It's always got these underlying deep roots in things that we never resolved. And I guess some, maybe I knew some of that, but also I think I'd grown up in a program that told me that the drugs were the problem. And as soon as they were gone, my life would get better. That didn't really, wasn't a requirement of any of my 12 step work to delve into the past other than, you know, a couple of really, you're supposed to write a, a fourth step and then share it with a fifth step and then do some stuff in your ninth step. So like all told, you might have seven days in your recovery where you're supposed to focus on your past. And it's just, I mean, I'm still focusing on my past and a lot of my therapy. So yeah, I think that was the beginning of um, my interest in what I decided was I wanted my life to have meaning and that workaholism wasn't the way to go and that I wanted to do something with women in recovery. So I decided that I would become a recovery coach when I had time. I went back to work in government. I stopped teaching. I stopped consulting. I went back to work in government. And four months after I'd been back at work, my unit got dissolved. Um, it was because of the economic crisis. You know, in 2011, things were still kind of not going very well. And I got a package. They sent me home with a year's salary. Um, I used to say I, like, I was actually making money by being laid off because I didn't have to pay for nylons or parking or lunches out. And so I felt like I was ahead of the game. But also it was devastating in the beginning when I got laid off. I realized it would have been more devastating if it had happened before I went off on leave and decided I wanted to do something more meaningful because achieving like the high level that I had in that job and the work. And I mean, I had 24 people on my team and that was my identity. And because I'd been off and been doing the work, that was no longer my identity. I figured out that my work was not my worth. And thankfully, you know, for, again, timing wise, that made a lot of sense. So when I went back to when I had gone back to work, even for just those four months, my daughter, Taryn, and I were talking and I said, I can't blog anymore because I can't, it takes, for those of you who write blogs, like it takes a long time to write a blog. And I said, I can't work all day and write at night. I'll just end up back where I was. I mean, I need to work from nine to five and not do anything in the evening, take care of myself. So she said, why don't you start a Facebook page? And I mean, I had a Facebook account at that time. I didn't use it. I didn't even really know what it was all about. 2011. I mean, it's not that long ago, but life was different. So I tried to set up a Facebook page. At that time, they called them fan pages, which felt weird, but I tried to set one up and I couldn't. So I ended up setting up another personal account called She Recovers, which I can't get rid of. It's still on there. You'll find it. It's got a little rock, a little rock with a piece of sea glass on it. That's the accidental She Recovers account. She figured out how we do it. We did it on the page. And yeah, that was June 2011. Then we started doing retreats um, just because we felt like going to Mexico and we thought a retreat would be fun. And then that retreat program turned into um, women in our community expressing the desire to have something bigger. So we did a, an event called She Recovers in New York City in 2017 and then LA in 2018. We just did Miami this year and we're going to Chicago at the end of this year. But um, we started, we realized that this idea, these ideas that we were promoting through what are now our intentions and guiding principles, 
really are based on three main pillars, I guess. One is that we are all recovering from something, very simply. Um, the other is that we need to be supported to find and follow individualized pathways of, of recovery, regardless of what we're recovering from. We need to do it our own way. And then thirdly, that self-care and kind of taking care of ourselves is really, really important in our recovery. And that includes doing all the work, right? Setting boundaries, doing trauma work, all of those things. So those are kind of the three cornerstones. There should be four, I guess, because cornerstones, there's usually four, but those are the three main things. There's 10 and whoopsie, they are available on our website. And I won't go into all of them because I'd be here all day, but yeah, just kind of things unfolded. And now we are a nonprofit, 501c3 in the United States. That happened with COVID. When COVID happened in March um, 2020, we pivoted to online meetings, which are now just, we have two a day. And then we have a number of identity-based groups for BIWOC and LGBTQ and mothers of high needs children, legal professionals, healthcare and allied professionals, veterans and first responders, Spanish speaking women. And I always forget one, but there's another one I think in there. And um, I'm no longer in charge of the foundation. I don't run the foundation anymore. We have a wonderful CEO, Susan Carter, and a team of about 10 people who are out there raising money to do the things that we're doing. And we're just um, getting back into, we used to have in-person sharing circles prior to the pandemic, hosted by our coaches, now hosted by our coaches or our yoga teachers, anybody certified in our 10 intentions and guiding principles. And we're just now launching our first two chapters. So, I mean, she recovers on this huge, huge growth thing. And um, it's beautiful. And I'm the chair of the foundation, Terrence, the vice chair, and we're still very much involved strategically. And I'm probably pretty involved in some of the day-to-day, -day, but not all of it. I went back to consulting because consulting um, is a lucrative practice for me. And I don't have to work a lot of hours to make enough money to pay the bills. And last year I wrote a book. So my book is coming out February 21st, and it's a daily meditation book. Um, for those of us in recovery who are familiar with Hazel and meditation books, they have about 40 of them. They wanted somebody to write something that was a little fresher, uh, that wasn't focused on just alcohol, and that wasn't focused just on 12-step recovery. So I did that, and I'm very excited about this book. And that's a long blah, blah, but that's it. It's an amazing blah, blah. Like... <clears throat> I'm, I'm so impressed with kind of your resilience and your dedication to make purpose out of it. You know, I think that a lot of us in recovery have similar things that we can kind of um, relate to, but not everyone takes that and turns it into a drive and a national, international movement to support women. And that's, I think, the part that is so impressive about your story is, is how this became, I mean, how many women, I know, I know what it is, but I'm gonna let you tell, how many women does She Recovers on the platform serve today? We think we reach over 300,000 kind of through all of our different platforms. And thank you for, thank you for that, because what I really want to say, and this is not false humility at all, this is it really wasn't Taryn and I, we started a Facebook page and that's why I say it's the accidental movement. It was, it was that there, there, these ideas had been brewing in a lot of people's, a lot of women's minds for a long time. There had been a real need for women to not be slotted into a particular recovery pathway. 
um, for a long time. And so we just really started having that conversation first, I think. And, you know, other people followed, right? My friends, Holly and, and Laura and others and Annie Grace and you know, people that I know who kind of met when they kind of came in onto the scene and they reached out to me because what of what we were doing. Um, so I'd say it really has been a co-creation and I just, we can't take credit for it. It was a need. It was a need. And we just kind of opened up a conversation and a space for these things to happen. And we always say that She Recovers is an umbrella. We're not like, this is come here, come over here. We don't even have a program, so to speak. We have a set of intentions and guiding principles. But what we really do is try and, and um, ensure that women are aware of all the various pathways and patchworks and to help them build their own, right? I mean, we I always, whenever I meet a woman in recovery who's seeking recovery for alcohol use disorder or for substance use disorder, the first thing I'll say is try a 12-step meeting. If you don't like it or if it doesn't feel like it works for you, then we'll go on to something else. But it's the most available, freest. I mean, it really is the most accessible recovery pathway in the world. All the literature is in like that, like hundreds of different languages. And so why not start there? And also I had really, really, really remarkably positive experiences in the 12-step program for addiction that I was part of. Um, but I, you know, I do understand that that doesn't mean it's for everybody. And then I'll say something like, well, try women for sobriety if that didn't work for you and try Annie Grace's method or, you know, try life ring or smart recovery or really just come to our meetings and listen to everybody else talk about all the things they're doing. And you might find yoga and art. And there's just so many ways that there isn't any one way. It doesn't even have to be a program. Um, I think you do have to do the work, like the work of digging through your past. And so at some point you're gonna need a program or a therapist, preferably both. Um, but you know, some people can do that work on their own as well, right? If they're really, really introspective and are able to do that. Um, I'm not, I freak myself out when I dig too deep into my past, but so it really has just been a, we always say this, just a co-creation. I had no desire to host a, a conference for five or 600 people. I actually was absolutely against having online, having a Facebook group. When the Facebook group started, it was because Kelly Beck, one of our first coaches, really very first coaches said, we need a Facebook group. And at the time I was a member of home and I was a member like of all the group of, of BFB. I've been a member of BFB since it practically since the second year it was in existence all these other groups and I was like we don't need another one I we don't like why why would we do that and then when home dissolved actually in January 2018 Kelly said we're doing this I was like I don't want to but okay and we did it and thank heavens we did I said we're not doing online meetings we don't need to you know there's all sorts of online meetings there's in the rooms you can do AA NA there were other just women focused meetings we don't need online meetings and then when uh, COVID hit, uh, it, it only took about 12 hours for someone to convince me that we could try. We'll try a meeting. March 17th, we tried a meeting in the evening. And March 18th, we had two, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And we've had two a day ever since. So, and I mean, and then the growth, right? The growth from that. And that's turned into the yeah, like the sharing circles were not no these things really were my idea it came from women who would be talking about well why don't you do this or why don't we do this and now it's you know now it's the chapters and so thank you very kind and as i said and i've written about and i think about is like okay legacy done you know i've got a legacy who knew 
never intended to, never really strove to do that, but that's done. It frees me up for a lot of things um, in my life now because that part's taken care of, but it really isn't. Uh, it's it's just been a, a total community effort. And that's, I think, what makes us so special is people feel ownership around She Recovers and we all should, right? Like this, what are we going to do now? Or this is our way of doing things. And it's really beautiful. We have 150 volunteers. Many of them are involved in the online meetings and, and other things. So it's it's very much a, a joint effort. And I'm really, really proud of all the people that have stepped forward, including coaches like Heather. I love it. It's, yeah. I, yeah, I absolutely, I was at the conference in March um, and it was so incredibly powerful. I'm trying to get the rest of them to join me in Chicago. I've already bought my ticket because it's this, and I think this is what the website and the meetings, it's this place that allows women to recover in the way that they need to recover. And um, we are also multifaceted, you know, that for me, it's food, it's alcohol, it's, you know, relationships, it's, it's all of those things, it's trauma. It's, and when you come to these meetings, it's your welcome. So it's funny that you say, try when I see a new client, I'm like, okay, so here's the, she recovers, um, you know, option here are meetings here are this, because I think it all is important. It's all important because we recover all this parts of us, uh, in that way. So I'm going to let, um, the rest of my sober chicks, uh, have the floor and ask their questions or, or comments. Um, I'll step in. Um, so I think one of the most beautiful things about what you guys do is you acknowledge, and, and this is something that we talk about all the time, is that recovery is not a one size fits all. It is not what worked for me is going to work for her. These are the steps that you have to go through in order to be in recovery. And I feel like for a long time for me, that's kind of what kept me at bay is I was like, well, if I have a problem, I'm going to have to start going to these AA meetings and I'm going to have to start doing this over here. Um, and it just took me to where I got to a point in my life where all of that aside, the main focus that I needed to focus on was getting myself better and stopping the habit. And then whatever came after that, is kind of how my recovery went, but I never went to a 12-step program. I do think, like you said, that they're absolutely amazing. Um, and I've been sober for almost nine years now. So eight years ago, nine years ago, it wasn't this hardcore movement to where I thought I had to do like all the internal stuff. Um, it took me a while to figure out maybe I should go to therapy um, so when people, we get the question all the time is like, what exactly did you do? And I was like, well, it doesn't really work. I can tell you what I did and you can try to pick and choose from that to see what fits. But that's one of the biggest things that I try to relate to people is what worked for me may not work for you. The trauma that I had is completely different trauma that you had. You may not even have had hardcore trauma like I did, you know? So I think that's so important. And I do think that that's a huge thing that holds people back from actually becoming sober and starting their recovery journey. So I'm a huge advocate 
um, huge advocate for that. And, you know, always having that library, you know, like you said, of here's a lot of things that you can start to tap into. But for me, that personal, in my mind, that personal connection to someone who is starting their sobriety journey, I was like, that's step one. Like you've connected with someone yeah. who's sober. You're trying to find out what worked for them. I was like, you're, you're there. You're, you're ready to go. You yeah. just have to find what fits with you the best. So I think that that's huge. Absolutely. And, you know, I talk about how when in 1987, when I first got into treatment, nobody was suggesting that I go to a yoga class, yeah. listen to podcasts, read some blogs, read some chick, you know, like read Quitlet, like none of those things existed. And, yep. and it was just like, you, thou shalt go to 12 step recovery or thou shalt die. And the fact that here we are 36 years later, and that's still the message in some treatment mm -hmm. centers. It's one of my missions is to change that, to have this conversation yeah. until people, because I do. And again, like I do go back to, I think that um, I do encourage people to check out 12 step recovery because, because that's where you're going to find the personal connection of people who are trying to do the same thing as you. And yeah. you're not necessarily going to find it in your family or your friends network. You, you know, not always. So I, I am a huge advocate for it, but also, yeah, it has to be individualized. It has yep. to be what works for you. And well, and a lot of my recovery was kind of hindsight's 2020 to where I look back and I'm like, wow, that was a hardcore part of my recovery. And, and part of mine was fitness. You yeah. know, I joked in the beginning that I traded one addiction for the other, but when looking back that literally was the one thing that I knew the next day I wanted my body to feel good. Yeah. So if I just did that day, that one day I didn't drink, I knew the next yeah. day would be even better. Um, and so I can look back in my beginning and be like, yeah, that was a crucial, crucial part to where like a bunch of people, I was like, go for a walk outside, like get fresh air. You yeah. know, you'd be amazed at what that does for your day, especially for me, if I get insanely stressed or I'm having a really stressful day, that's the first thing I go do. I cut out 30 minutes. I go outside, I breathe fresh air and I'm with myself. I'm the same. And, you know, there's kind of a joke and she recovers because movement is well, movement mm -hmm. is our movement equals medicine is our big campaign. It's we're, we're trying to make that in the next couple of years, be like our race for the cure type thing. Yeah. And then she recovers because of Taryn the co my daughter and co-founder right her focus on yoga is we've become really known for yoga and yoga retreats and all these other things and I don't like yoga I don't love yoga and I pretended to for years I really did and then finally I said like I don't love this I really don't I love walking I live you know I walk down the street and, and I'm in a nature preserve and I can walk it's a 45 minute loop and it's just beautiful and I love that mm -hmm. um we dance a lot. We have, she recovers dance on on Sundays with Peyton. Peyton developed this beautiful program. So movement is so important. The mm -hmm. other thing that I want to point out that you said, that's really like, I think that there are things that you need to do. Like you said, connect with a sober person, connect with somebody in 12 step recovery. It used to be like, find somebody who has what you want. And I think we can use that, right. Regardless mm -hmm. of whether we're anywhere near a 12 step program. I always say to people that you need the things you need first are honesty. Like you have to get honest about whatever it is that that is killing you and then you need to get curious what is this all about and that you know curiosity involves why am I doing this and it also involves 
how are other people dealing with this and how are other people healing and, and recovering from this? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, kind of thirdly is that connection. So, you know, you get honest, you do your research, you think about things, and then you tell somebody like you, you whether it's a therapist or a physician or even somebody that you're married to, like, you know, you need to say, Hey, this is where I'm at and I need support. Mm -hmm. Hi, Don. I'm Tracy. Hey, Tracy. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for your time and, and the service that you've given. And, and that's kind of where I'm intrigued by is just, you know, how much, I mean, to, to organize, to be inspired, to create, to organize, to keep it going. And now I hear you have a CEO and you have 10, you know, people in office and you're on a chair and, and you're having conferences. It's just, it's mind blowing. And, and now I, I think you also have a another job so so when was it was was she recovers ever your full-time job and and where you didn't you know rely on the income of another place and then also who do you find being your biggest supporters to fund this because I know it's nonprofit so sponsorships um yeah yeah so I would like to know a little so bit about that when I when I let's see so in 20, I, I went back to consulting, as I said, after I kind of mm -hmm. lost, lost my, after the year, after the year of severance where I didn't have to work. So in about 2013, I guess I started, I went back to consulting and I was doing great with consulting. And then when we got to 20, the end of 2016, we were planning, we were going into, um, she recovers in New York city, four of us organized, she recovers in New York city, the whole thing like from start to finish. Um, that and how big Taren. was that? Oh, 600 and how, women. And how many people? 600 wow, women 600 came women. to it. Yeah, that's Glennon Doyle, Gabby Bernstein, Elizabeth Vargas from 2020, and um, Marianne Williamson were our keynotes. It was insane. We were insane. There's another story about all And how long was that conference? That. Sorry? How long was that, that, was that conference? It was started Friday night, went till Sunday afternoon. All of our conferences do. Although now we've added on a professional symposium on the Thursday and we're adding more programming on the Friday this year in Chicago mm -hmm. so that we can have identity-based groups meet. So we'll have, um, anyway, more programming now. So in 2017, as we were doing New York City, I, I just didn't have time to consult anymore, but I wasn't making any money. New York City, actually, Taryn and I lost $40,000 when mm -hmm. we ran New York City. Uh, because we had said yes to four keynotes when we'd invited all four thinking maybe one would say yes, all four said yes. And what we learned was that when you submit an offer, it's called a firm offer for a reason. Oh no! If you say, will you do this? And they say, yes, you have to have them. We like, oh, we didn't wow. even know if one would and they all, so we were stuck. And oh. although we were excited about the lineup, like, yeah, it totally, you know, wiped us out financially. Wow. So this is 2017. I'm unable to work. I'm losing money. I mean, I had savings, obviously, and I had credit lines. It was a disaster. In going into 2018 in LA, um, we were an LLC at the time. So it was Taryn and I and mm -hmm. Peyton at the time. And we had another wonderful partner named Shelly and other people that were doing work with us on the events. But 2018 was a little bit better. We did so many retreats that we made money from the retreats. Um, we broke even on LA, which was it felt like making a million dollars after what had happened in New York City. Um, but by the end of 2018, I was like, yeah, you know what? Financially, I can't do this anymore. You know, mm -hmm. I've got to go back to consulting. I've got to start working. And this wonderful fairy godmother dropped out of the sky and said, 
she recovers needs one more year to make it so that you can you and Taryn can be paid and Peyton because Peyton was doing all the retreats and all the events and so we were planning Miami for 2020 at the time so this wonderful woman a dear friend invested in the LLC so that we could between the events and what she invested we could pay ourselves so I Taryn and I were paid and Peyton for work for doing work for she recovers for the year 2019 and we were doing great and because of the events we were getting sponsors and 2020 came around and it was over <laughs> you know there were no there yeah. were going to be Miami got canceled all the retreats got canceled there was no income there was no way I mean we we had applied for our nonprofit status so we could pivot to that and start raising money but we 2020 nobody got paid our CEO Susan Carter who was a friend of ours who always wanted us to be a nonprofit said, I'm going to come and get this going. And I, you know, obviously we couldn't pay her. So 2020, I went back to consulting, still continued to do She Recovers. Nobody got paid for 2020. And then we developed a budget, got Miami back on the books, started accepting donations and started paying Susan and a few other people, Peyton and a few other people in 2021. And then in 2022, things grew again. You know, we were planning, we had Miami coming, so we had that sponsorship. Um, and now our budget is, in 2022, we received a quarter of a million dollar grant from the Conrad Hilton Foundation. That's amazing. Well, the Hilton Foundation, we just happened to meet Linda Hilton when we did our event at Beverly Hilton. And she just happened to be sober. And she just happened to say, hey, you should apply to my family's foundation. So we're always looking for those types of things. We have some incredibly generous women in our don't in our community who also have family foundations and they're not huge necessarily, but we get donations of $10,000, from them every year. Amazing. We have recurring donors who, I mean, some donate $10 a month on a recurring basis, some 50, some a hundred. Um, there's, there's never enough money, you know, and especially going into this year, like our budget, I think this year is 1.5 million to cut, to pull off everything we need to do. We need that much money. And, you know, we, we're not, we need to raise that money. So we have a wonderful person who does development and fundraising for us. And Susan Carter is our CEO. So she does everything kind of operationally, but she's also a kick-ass fundraiser. So that's, that's what we it. do. Thank you. Yeah, that's incredible. Because that's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work. I'm sure these women are still underpaid for what they are doing um, and the value that they're bringing. And yeah. I can't wait to see the more sponsorships that you guys get. Yeah, we, we do pretty well. We have wonderful, we? one of our most recent sponsorship, or it's a, an integrated partnership more than a sponsorship. And it's with a, a mm -hmm. company called Aware out of New England. And they're a treatment program where they go into the home so, and this is so great for moms and it's a 12 month program. They treat the entire family. So they actually go in and they whole team of people in there. It's like, and their outcomes, like I'm a, an evidence-based policy researcher, right? Their outcomes are just bizarrely impressive. So it's models like that. And it's partners like that, that we really want to work with. We want to bring the resources that women need to them. And this is one of the most, I think the most refreshing and inspiring programs that we've run across in a really long time. Hazel and Betty Ford, much more traditional, uh, but has also been an incredible supporter of us. We have people like Dope, right? Dope Cookie Dope. Yeah. You know, they give us 1% of their entire sales over the year. And wow. you know, it adds up to $40,000, $50,000 a year. It's yes. Incredible. 
So yeah, That's we're amazing. really lucky. And it's, it's developing those partnerships. What our development officer says, there's, there isn't anybody that we go to that says, no, I can't help you. They might say not yet. They might say I only have this much, but people get what we're doing and get the importance, right? When one, when a woman heals, her family heals. When families yeah. heal, communities heal. So they get it. I love it, Don. Well, thank you. Thank you again. It's, it's amazing to have you here and to meet you. I see. Nice to meet you too. And I know we're running out of time here. No, it's, it's lovely. It's lovely. I've learned so much and um, being part of the community is, is big for me and my recovery. Um, you know, being a, she recovers coach is also huge for me as well. Um, and I promote as much as I possibly can when I can. Um, and it's been lovely to see your um, community grow and the robustness of the community and the engagement I see um, from people. And it's just so cool to see, I, I'm a big proponent of peer support. That's what I'm trying to bring into the, the corporate space. Um, so to see that in your Facebook community is amazing. I love to see how other people are lifting those up that are really struggling. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's amazing. And, um, I just am so thankful to you to have that space for everybody. I don't, quite have a question um <laughs> but wanted to thank you very much for for holding that space and um for having people like heather and monica and other people that um step up to the plate to hold space for others with these meetings every day well and dana i want to thank you for being a she recovers coach and for offering all the wonderful services that i know that you do and the work that you're doing <clears throat> we'll need to talk about it more one day soon <clears throat> excuse me but it just really does take you know, it, it takes an army and I don't like to use that yes. terminology necessarily, but there's just, there's so much work to be done out there and um, the workplace, you know, if people had, I knew where to go when I had my breakdown in government, like I knew because I'd had other experience, but yesterday we had our first sharing circle here in Victoria, there were 15 women, three of them were women who work in government, who, who somehow heard about She Recovers, they don't even know how, they didn't even know what it was. They just know that they need help. And I was like, ah, I'm excited about going into, going back to where I used to work and telling my story. I think my story is going to be really powerful when I'm standing in front of the organization that helped turn me into a workaholic. Absolutely. And talk about, <laughs> you know, talk about that. Like, let's talk about that for a minute, but also mm -hmm. talk about the fact that, you know, there are literally thousands of women probably in the public service where I live that could use the support that we offer. So thank you for the work that you do. Yeah, thank you. Well, I have loved this conversation and I think it really, if you were not speaking to us on an individual level and really what you were saying wasn't resonating, I don't think it would have blown up the way it has. You've clearly tapped into the guiding principles and the whole concept behind She Recovers is just finally hearing the voice that we all need to hear that, you know, you are accepted and you are, this is a non-judgmental space and you recover how you want. And we're all recovering from something and we can recover out loud. That's a huge one that is really important to me to hear because in other spaces that's frowned upon. And um, that kind of lit a light for me 
um, to kind of do the work that I'm doing now. And part of that idea and that concept was supported by She Recovers and the meetings and the and the yeah. the, um, the format. Um, Heather, I think and- the one thing that we didn't say, if I, I don't want to leave this conversation without saying it, is also that because not everybody in our community is recovering from substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder, um, we're not abstinence-based. Yeah. So we have people who are curious mm-hmm. and, and that you haven't made decisions, but I think that's an important piece too. There's no requirement for abstinence in our space. Well, when you're in our spaces, we'd like you to be abstinent, but you right. know, abstinence isn't everybody's goal. Right. And it really does follow the path of recovery coaching. You know, I'm here to support you and your recovery as you determine what it is. And this is just a movement that kind of supports that concept. And I think that's really important because just like what Meredith said, there's this idea that there's only one way, it's been a long time, there's only one way to recover. And while that is an incredibly powerful tool, it is not the only tool. We do not fix houses with only a hammer. We need all kinds of tools and we need to use them at different places and different times. And I really uh, love that that's what it's built on. And for me, being a coach and doing these meetings, I get so much out of it. You know, it's every time it's it's nine o'clock at night for me now because of the daylight savings, which I'm so glad is going away. And I'm like, I don't have the energy. I don't have the energy. And I log in and the end of that meeting, I'm like, like, it's just like such a, <clears throat> it's such a cool experience um, to hold space for these women. And so for thank me, for it, it really feeds my recoveries, you know, it really does. So thank you. Um, any finishing last minute, you have a book that's coming out. It's on available on Amazon. Um, she recovers every day. It's coming out February 21st. We're still, um, yeah, we are hold, we're starting to host sharing circles all over North America again. So you can check our website out and find out where those are popping up. They're just kind of coming online slowly, but surely. Uh, we still have lots of space for She Recovers in Chicago, which is the end of September. Um, yeah, and just, you know, the, our chapters have been formed, our first two chapters, the first two ever chapters. One is on Long Island and the other one is in New England. And so there are sharing circles and other events taking place. I will be in New England in, and on Long Island in May. I'm going for a speaking engagement and we'll be doing two kind of chapter launch events, um, one on Long Island and one in New England, probably around Boston in May. And there'll be more about that coming out too. Wonderful. And we will put all the links in so that anyone that's interested, curious, wants to know more, will be able to go to the foundation page, to the the Thank Facebook you. page and all of that for sure. And, and I'll add the link to, I have a new website. It hasn't, okay. it's launching this week. It's www.donnickel.com. And I've got um, my more recent podcast. I, there's too many to put on there. And they're like from 2013 mm-hmm. was my first one, I think. So, um, but I'm putting my more recent ones on. So this will be on there when there's a link available. And we'll also share um, the link with across our channels. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And thank you for all the hard work. Thank you for the team that you have assembled. Thank you for championing, championing recovery for women and giving us a place to heal. We really appreciate it. I appreciate all of you. Thank you. Yes. Thank, thank you, Don. Thank, thank you so much. All right, that's it for this episode and uh, tune in in two weeks and we'll uh, have another amazing episode for you. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thanks so much for joining us today. 
We appreciate you and wish you the best on your sober adventures. For more information and details on upcoming episodes, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at 4SoberChicks. That's number 4SoberChicks. We welcome your feedback and look forward to being with you on the next episode.